Since the dawn of civilization, spies of every nation and culture have worked to infiltrate their adversaries and glean the information that will give their side the advantage. The stakes are sky high, the strategies varied and imaginative, and the ultimate sign of success is that no one ever even knew you were there. In each episode, we will explore the moral and ethical gray zones of espionage, where treachery and betrayal go hand in hand with cunning and courage. This is the Spycraft 101 podcast. Welcome to your clandestine classroom. This is episode number 37 of the Spycraft 101 podcast. With me right now is Dr. Jonathan Gill, a professor of humanities at Amsterdam University College and previously at Columbia University. Dr. Gill is the author of several nonfiction books, and I invited him onto the podcast after reading his most recent book, Hollywood Double Agent, The True Tale of Boris Moros, film producer turned Cold War spy. Jonathan, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with me about your book today. I'm glad to be here. I appreciate it. appreciate it. I'm glad that we could finally get together, too, after we've been going back and forth a little bit. So it was not that long ago, actually, that I first learned about Boris Moros, which quickly led me to your book. But, you know, once I started reading, I was I was actually shocked that I hadn't come across very much info about him previously because his life touched on so many key personalities and key turning points of the 20th century, all of which I was thought I was pretty familiar with to begin with. So do you think as the author, do you think that his story has mostly been forgotten until your book came along? Yeah, I, I think it it has mostly been forgotten. I have a Google alerts for Boris Moros, and you know I get stuff almost every single day. But that's mostly reissues of the movies that he made. But in terms of his espionage work, people in the field might know about him, but largely he's been overshadowed by. Oh, I think in some cases more significant figures in the world of espionage, but in other cases, you know, sexier stories that involve people getting the death penalty or or something like that. Mm-hmm. But I, what I did find when I started to do the research, you know, now that everything is online, I could go back and look at trade publications and every newspaper in America and Europe and everywhere else. Boris was in the newspaper every single day, one way or another. So there was just an enormous amount of material to go through. And sometimes we forget in the media landscape that we have now that there were many, many more publications back then. And Boris was a formidable self-promoter. Yeah, that really shined through in your book for sure. And I was I was shocked at how many different things he was involved in, both like, you know, Hollywood-wise and and clandestine as well. So I also noticed that this is your first book that you've published about espionage from what I can tell. So what was it that led you to this story since it's a bit of a departure for you? Yeah, well, I'm one of those people that just never stops reading. And, and this mm. book had its uh, has origins in a – I'm just reading a book review. I don't know if you remember a couple – more than a couple of years ago, a movie came out about Julia Child, the chef. And there was a book that came out around the same time. And I was reading about Julia Child's best friend when during World War II when she worked for the OSS, which I'm sure your listeners know that w- was the precursor for the, for the CIA. And in that book review, it talked about a woman named Jane Foster who was Julia child's best friend and who was also a member of the espionage ring of Boris Moros, a Hollywood producer turned double agent. And I thought, wow, that one sentence, there's a book there. 
and that's how that's how it got started. It just it combined just lots of things that I love, especially you know the movies and music and and mid twentieth century America, and so that's how it all got started. Just one sentence in a book, uh, in, a, in a book in a book review. That's amazing. And you know, it's, it's funny because you were completely right. There certainly was a book there and it was a fascinating read. I finished it myself in just a few days. So like we mentioned, Boris was publicly well known, but his other activities were not. So how did you go about investigating this world that was a little bit, I guess, new to you at that time of, of the Cold War espionage? Yeah, I mean, the fact that there's just so much information out there with just a few keystrokes is both great and kind of a disaster as well. I mean, I, 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 writers, you know, sit and they, and they write, but then sometimes they can also go out and, you know, do the whole shoe leather thing. And years past, decades past, that would have meant going to different sorts of archives. But we're very lucky to have a variety of sources that have been made available and are all on the internet through, for example, the, the Venona papers, through the Woodrow Wilson Center. There are a bunch of archives that have been made available and in many cases translated regarding Soviet espionage, the entire history of Soviet espionage. And so a lot of what I had to do involved just going through all these translated secret cables that went back and forth between the United States and the Soviet Union. You know, I was interested in from the mid-30s until really until the mid-50s when Boris wasn't quite as active anymore. So that's one thing. I was just going through a lot of declassified material or material that had just been stolen from the Soviet archives. That was not that was one side of it. Another side of it was going through things like trade publications or and and just newspapers in New York and California and in Boston looking for mentions of Boris. It was really easy to search for all that. And I was just blown away by how prominent he was at the time. And the third element in the research was reaching out to people who were still alive, members of his family. And I became, I wouldn't say best friends, but I came, became buddies with his widow, Marion Moros, who just died last year. But it was really interesting because when I talked to Look, I mean, in all this material, you have to think, you know, there's a reason it was classified. It was a reason it was declassified. It's translated. Can we really trust it? And, you know, and on and on. But that also is also true with the, when you're going to be talking about live sources. When I went to visit his uh, wife, Marion, who was in the phone book and living on Riverside Drive in New York City, and I just called her up. She would just say, why, why, why are you writing about Boris? My father's much more interesting. And so I would listen to her <laughs> father, to stories about her father, who actually was a very interesting guy. And then stuff we'd come around to Boris. And every time I went to see her, she would say to me, oh, too bad you're here today. Because yesterday I just threw out all his diaries. They were in the closet for years and years. Oh I don't gosh. know. I think she learned a couple things from Boris about managing the truth. But in all <laughs> these different sources, you really have to exercise a lot of discretion and doubt as to why is someone telling you this? You have to become a little bit of a spy yourself, actually, when it comes to managing all this information. Oh, yeah. I've, I've seen that to my myself to a lesser degree, for sure. You know, I try to write up a, a lot of different subjects and cover a lot of different subjects. And eventually you get to the point where you're not sure what is real and what was, you know, intentional disinformation even 50 years ago. Like, how can you completely trust the archives, you know, what's missing or what was changed and, and all that. And it really gets your yeah, head spinning. And I'll, give you, I'll sure. give you an example. Boris always talked about how he was in the St. Petersburg Conservatory, studied there. And well, I mean, how do you find out if that actually was true? <laughs> Pre-revolutionary 
Russia, you know, the, the, the archive or the archive of archives is, is, is filled with all kinds of different sorts of gaps. So I ended up contacting someone in St. Petersburg who has access to what's left, uh, left over of the student rosters, uh, rosters of teachers and, and, and things like that. And they never found his name. And so I said, Oh, that means he was just lying about that, how, that he was a student in the conservatory. She said, No, 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 because there were lots of students who took private lessons with teachers at the conservatory. That must have been what happened with Boris. Then he broke, he bragged about being Rimsky Korsakov's student and Prokofiev's student. And we'll, we'll just never know uh, the truth unless some other kind of archive becomes available. But so even when I could get you know people on the ground to go actually look things up, even then it's not a it's not a it's not a sure thing. Of course, I was always really interested in documentation. And so, for example, I was able to get a copy. It's really easy to get a copy of Boris's entry documents from 1922 when he arrived. And there's just an enormous amount of information. And of course, there's also draft registration records. Vote. Well, he never voted, so there are no voting cards. <laughs> but there are all kinds of other. When he became an American citizen, there's a declaration before you become an American citizen. And all that material is available uh, online, just a few keystrokes if you know where to look. Good. Good. Yeah, I'm sure that's incredibly helpful for sure, because you really pieced together a story I wasn't expecting, like I said. And since you mentioned the conservatory, can we go all the way back to, I guess we'd say, imperial Russia? This is around the turn of the century, right? Can you can you tell us a little bit about Boris's early life before he ever came to the United States? Sure. I mean, but the, but the problem is that he told it so many different ways when he was born, where he was born, what his father did, what his brothers did, when he started playing instruments, what instruments did he play, when he entered the conservatory, if he entered conservatory. So in some respects, it was a, it's a question of sort of figuring out what which which sources overlap with each other and what can I know for sure. And then there's a second category of what can I surmise must have been the case. So, for example, the St. Petersburg Conservatory, the student body consisted largely of Jewish students. And so you can really make, you can really surmise a lot about what Boris's experience must have been like back in those days. You know, if these days, you know, every, the, the old joke about uh, the, a Jewish family wants their, you know, son or daughter to become a doctor or a lawyer. Back then, Jewish families would have wanted their children to, to become a musician. That's because students at the conservatory, either in Moscow or in St. Petersburg, were allowed to live in Moscow and St. Petersburg with their families. Otherwise, Jews were not allowed to live in the large urban areas with, with some exceptions. And so being able to get your kid into the conservatory was a huge leap forward. It's not really clear where Boris was born. I, I believe that he must have been born in a town called Bobrovsk. It's really interesting now with the news in recent days about the Russian invasion of Ukraine. A lot of this er, book, early parts of this book, through the end of the First World War actually takes place in what's now Ukraine, but would have been Belarus or Poland, mm -hmm. you know, or Romania. Or so he was probably born in, in a small small town called Bobrovsk. He was clearly at a young age uh, a cello virtuoso, and that enabled his parents to uh, allow him to uh, apply for admission to the Saint Petersburg Conservatory. If in fact this actually happened, and that's how they right. ended up living in Saint Petersburg, the entire family, which becomes very important because later on the Soviets were able to use Boris's closeness with his family. 
as a way to pressure him. So that's so he he was a child prodigy and traveled all around the Russian provinces with his father, or at least this is what he says, and that's what there, there's limited corroboration of that. Um, and eventually, at least was studying there if he wasn't an officially an enrolled student. But this was just a way for, for Jews to survive, but also to be able to live in a place where they could make a living. Boris's father, maybe, was a locksmith. He told it so many different ways. And one of the ways, one of the mm-hmm. things that I realized is that Boris told the story according to the needs of the moment. So, you know, he could say, oh, yeah, I come from a long line of musicians, my father and my father's father and my father's father. That's what he told uh, people in Hollywood and in the, the New York music business. But then when he wanted to portray the, the, the difficulty of his of his background, then suddenly his father was a locksmith. Maybe his father was a locksmith and a musician. I, we'll, we'll just never know as far mm-hmm. as I can tell. I, I think, I guess... I seem to know more about this man than anyone else on the planet. When I talk to members of the family, I tend to know more about it than they do because he's a very complicated figure, you know, a patriot and a traitor. It's really difficult to to, to find good information about, about, about his early years. I mean, sometimes people contact me out of the blue. Yeah, my, my father was Boris's cousin and, or my grandfather knew Boris back in 1921-22 in Istanbul. And these things would just come out of the blue sometimes. And that was really fortunate when it would. Hmm. So, yeah, I, I can understand how you, you as a researcher would know a little bit more than his family, especially with a guy like him who pretty clearly only showed what he wanted to certain people at certain times, for sure. So um, getting all those stories straight must have been difficult. I guess we could caveat pretty much every question I have for you with the word allegedly from <laughs> this point on. But I know there are, of course, some things that he for sure was involved in. So do you think, well, was he truly, did he get close to the czar's family? Right then, right at the end of their reign, there. I mean, he he certainly mentioned it at times. Yeah, I mean, this was this was huge for him. Although it made you know when he told his story, although it made big problems once the Russian Revolution came around. To have been a member of the Tsar's court, you know, was not going to endear you to Lenin and to the Bolsheviks, and this became <laughs> right, a big problem right. in the Russian civil in, in the Russian Civil War. I mean, I did my best to try to find out. You know, look, if there's a young seventeen-year-old guy who's going to be the assistant conductor at the the Imperial Orchestra, you know, or the Imperial Opera. And then who's going to be running all the music at the Winter Palace and for the Tsar's court, which means for parties and for receptions and and, and, and playing, leading the orchestra at the, at the opening of the Duma, which was the different versions of the of the Russian Parliament. And I was never able to get. I was never able to in, independently confirm any of this. I did find newspaper articles from around the period where there would be stories of of uh, uh, child prodigies who would do this sort of thing. But I was never able to confirm this. I had a re- reason to trust him, reason not to trust him. I don't know. <laughs> Makes a good story, though. Yeah. I mean, this yeah, is also true does. about, you know, I, 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 I get the sense that he was not close to the czar and his family. You have to remember that where he was working, you know, when the czar's family was in the, you know, living outside of the city and living in, in the Winter Palace or some, or, or, or cruising around on their yachts. I mean, Boris was a hired hand making the music. Although 
the czar apparently was a huge music lover. And as Boris said, he would make requests that Boris would play. And so Boris implied that he had certainly known the czar's family. Boris carried with him for his entire life a set of beads, sort of like worry beads that you that you sometimes see. They are also used for prayer or for Russian Orthodox or sometimes Muslims. He carried around a set of beads that he claimed were given to him by uh, Rasputin. I will, <laughs> will never know. Wow. Wow. I mean, well, why wouldn't he claim that? Of course, on top of everything else, but yeah, who knows? Who knows? That's, that makes for a great story for sure. And so, he was really good at giving people what they wanted. I mean, no wonder he was such a success in, in the world of vaudeville and success in mean, radio and in Hollywood and, and why he wanted so badly to get into television later. And, you know, that was a, and these, the skills that he had telling his own story long before he became a spy, uh, according to what people wanted to hear, this was really useful when he got into, uh, when he got into espionage. Yeah, absolutely. That though he's building that skill set already, it sounds like that's going to serve him later on, even if he doesn't know it yet. Being Jewish in a time of terrible anti-Semitism, formal and informal, legal and illegal, it made him into a survivor. I mean, I think Boris had his training, you know, starting as a child. Right. I mean, you had to, especially like you mentioned, there was a lot of difficulties for the Jewish families in. Russia at that time, which makes it extra surprising if he did get, you know, in fact, into the court, I suppose. But how exactly did he eventually make it out of Russia as the October Revolution is going on in 1917? Because he was still a very young man at that time, wasn't he? Right. So when the revolution broke out, it was well known that he would, that he had worked at the czar's court. But of course, it wasn't really clear until the end of the civil war exactly who was going to come out on top, the Bolsheviks, the red, the reds, or the whites. And throughout the Russian civil war, uh, and again, he told this story different ways, but I was able to, 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 pe to piece it together. He seemed to have done what he did best, which is to switch sides when it was going to be convenient for him. And so at different times during the Civil War, he was very much associated with the whites, that is the anti-Bolshevik party, that would have been religious figures, uh, people associated with the czar, that kind of thing. But he also, during the Civil War, ended up working as the head of a state-run music school. He ended up working, you know, he got jobs from, this is, we wouldn't really call it the Soviets yet, we'd call them the Bolsheviks. But he got jobs at different Bolshevik institutions of education and music. Eventually, things got too hot for him, uh, and he had to hide out uh, in a town in what's now Belarus, was, was then uh, Ukraine. And he eventually had to get out alone, and he made his way to a place called Baku, which has been in the news again in recent years. He made his way to Baku, and from Baku, he made his way to Istanbul. It becomes really important, his time in Baku, because it's there that he met a, a really extraordinarily important figure in Russian intelligence named Lavrenti Beria, or at least Beria many years later remembered meeting a guy named Boris Moroz. That's the way you pronounce it. And remembers meeting a guy named Boris Moroz. And much later in the 1950s, when there were doubts about whether or not Boris was who he was really working for, and people would come to Beria and say, this guy's, you know, maybe he's a double agent. And Beria, no, the Boris Moroz that I remembered from back in Baku in uh, 1920, 1921, you know, was a loyal supporter of the Soviets. He eventually made his way to Istanbul, Istanbul during that period. Oh, if you know, if you think about the film Casablanca, where you have all these refugees, poor, rich, 
religious figures, former politicians, businessmen, black marketeers, drug addicts, you know, old people, all those people trying to get out. There were tens of thousands of Russian refugees who were trying to somehow get out. And Boris managed to do it. He met a woman there who eventually became his wife. She was married at the time to a man who was very ill and they had two kids. After that husband died, Boris then apparently married Katerina, and they were married until until the late 1950s. After Boris came in from came in from the cold, uh, they managed to get out in in December of 1922. Katerina, who for her whole life was viciously anti-Soviet and anti-communist, came from a relatively wealthy family, and they had she had the money to get passage on a boat to New York City, where they arrived in December of 1922. Right. It, it seems like that was kind of a marriage, a, like almost a lifelong marriage of convenience there, right? That was the impression I got from reading through the book. Like they both had what the other needed, but not really what they wanted exactly. Is that your impression as well? It's, it's, it's hard to tell. I mean, I don't get the feeling that there was an enormous amount of love between them. I think that she got him out because she had diamonds that she'd saved from her family. He protected her and her two children. Although once they arrived in America, I never, in all those years through the 1920s, 30s, 40s, and 50s, I never came across any sense that Katerina's children remained in touch with her. She doesn't seem like an enormously loving family type person, not to Boris, not to anybody else. And then later on, it was, it was thought when, when he became a, a Soviet spy, people were very worried because she would, everywhere she went, she would be bad-mouthing the Soviets. And, but Boris just loved this idea because he thought no no spy would allow his wife to badmouth the Soviets in public, right? No one would ever expect a spy to do that. <laughs> so it was a provided like incredible cover for him. But I think you're right. It was a was something of a marriage of convenience. And Boris made a lot of money. He was one of the top paid people in Hollywood, including actors, including producers, uh, for a good five or 10 years in the 1930s and early 1940s. And they had a very nice house, North Beverly Drive in Hollywood. So he, uh, he was really able to spoil Katerina. She never seemed to have made anything much of her life. She wasn't particularly involved in the child that they had together. His name was Dick or Richard. Then they had a maid, they had a nanny, and Boris was always busy after they moved to California around 1935. But it's interesting because Boris was known as someone who was very in Hollywood at the time, and of course, we think really differently about this now, was very handsy, was quite well known, you know, for his casting couch maneuvers. But then eventually when he met Marion in the early 1950s, who eventually became his wife, maybe while he was still married to Katarina, I guess. I'm not really sure. Marion wasn't clear about whether they actually officially got married or not. They were deeply in love. And you could tell from the pictures of them together, sitting on each other's lap and laughing. And Marion never married again and remained faithful to him. And she had her own reasons. Hmm. Yeah, that's yet another complex aspect of his life, for sure. A lot of the stuff that you've already said is just, it turned out to be amazing foreshadowing for what happened to his life later on in the United States with the constantly changing up the stories, figuring out how to get in someone's good graces and stay there no matter what, showing people what they wanted to see, all of that. It seems like he was born for the espionage game 
many, many years before he ever actually got into it. Would you say that was true? Yeah, I mean, and 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 you know, strangely enough, I mean, you don't you, you think, oh, this guy was a total amateur, no training whatsoever. You know, had no he, he was he was so, so indiscreet about everything, and he wasn't politically motivated, wasn't patriotically motivated. He was like the worst spy in the world, you would think. But <laughs> it turns out that he was really well suited for it. And he said he he said he once drew up a list of all the figures in the world of espionage. This is in the late 1950s of all the people he'd known. He had a list of 150 people and he said only three of them by the late 50s were still alive <laughs> so boris was able to survive by you know managing reality and managing his own history he was able to make a transition from all the synagogue work into playing organ and piano in movie theaters. Remember, this is the mid-1920s before sound was available in movies. And so you'd have a live performer playing. I mean, Fats Waller did this too, performing on organ or on piano. And that's what he became quite well known for his musical accompaniment. Although the reason he apparently moved to New York and got a job in vaudeville was because he was invited to organize Palestinian, which was the way what is now Israel and Palestine was referred to back then because, of course, Israel didn't exist. He was the head of a committee. To, there was a, a memorial statue or something like this. And that's the way he got to New York by getting a job organizing that committee. But almost immediately, he started doing his usual playing piano and organ at movie theaters. And he came to the, to the attention of Paramount uh, Pictures, which was all still located in New York City. And eventually, he worked his way up to becoming a manager and a booker of different these cinema palaces of the time. And then Adolf Zucker was so impressed by Boris's organizational skills that he sent Boris all over America to be what's called a fixer. That is, they'd send Boris to a cinema in Lubbock, Texas, because it's doing really badly. And Boris would bring in a better quality set of vaudeville performers. And so he got to know America r really well, although he never lost his accent. And and I, I heard the first recording I'd ever heard of Boris for the first time after I'd already finished the book. And I was really shocked to see, to hear what a strong Russian accent he had in the late 1950s. Although hmm. maybe it was an act. Maybe he wanted people to think, oh, I'm a poor immigrant, you know, who loves America. <laughs> I don't know. Wow. Um, he met uh, while he was uh, in Mississippi in 1927. There was a terrible flood. And so he organized uh, benefit concerts. And that's how he met Herbert Hoover who became a very valuable connection several years later when Herbert Hoover became president. And Boris always always claimed that he had been invited to Herbert Hoover's inauguration and that Katerina had the first dance with the president-elect. Typical Boris material, right? But mm -hmm. I actually found a photograph of the inauguration. And then I found a, a wider frame photograph and way off on the side – tiny little figure. It looks like Boris. Maybe he was there. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it's so hard. I can tell clearly to, to separate the fact from the fiction with this guy. And he's not the first person with that kind of nature to come up on the podcast, as a matter of fact, but he's a, a unique guy for sure. And, you know, it's funny to me that he got into the film industry so early that it wasn't the LA film industry. It wasn't the Hollywood film industry. It was the New York film industry at that time, I guess. Right. 
Well, that's right. One of the things I really loved about this book is there were so many different aspects to it. By the time he arrived in the mid-1930s, this was the this was the movie capital of the universe. And there were dozens and dozens of studios. And he worked for the, one, one of the very, very best. That would have been Paramount Pictures. Paramount Pictures was one of the, the classy, at the time, the classy alternative when it came to um, Hollywood studios. And Boris was brought in because he had a classical background. And they thought, oh, we're going to class up the music for our movies. And that's what Boris was was brought in to do. And that's what he did. He didn't like jazz music. He didn't like popular music. He was a real classical guy, even though he ended up having to do you know, somewhat more popular classical music of, uh, in the films. He's obviously built himself up into something coming from very little other than, I guess, some of his wife's money once they arrived. He's built himself up into something big. But at what point in his life did he finally come to the attention of the Soviet government once again? Because he'd been gone for, for what, 15 years or something like that? And hadn't, hadn't returned dur during all this time. I mean, one thing right. you've, I learned a lot about you know, my own country's history in the course of writing this, this book. I hadn't realized that the United States didn't recognize the Soviet Union as an independent nation, trading partner, you know, diplomatic partner until 1933. And the only reason that Roosevelt recognized the Soviet Union, because 1933 was also the year of Hitler's rise. And there was a sense in Europe that we'd need to, you know, balance you know, Hitler with someone else. And that turned that someone else was, uh, was going to be Stalin. So, so when the United States recognized the Soviet Union, then all kinds of interactions between the two countries were, were now possible, including postal services. And so in 1934, Boris, hadn't been in touch with his family the way he wanted to, but knew they must have been suffering because things were not easy in the Soviet Union in the 1930s for anybody. He began sending packages to his family, food, clothing, in some cases, medicine. In order to do that, you needed to have the help of the consulate in New York City. So this is 1933, 1934. He's still in New York City. It came to the attention of the consulate in New York, the Soviet consulate in New York City, that this guy named Boris Moros, who's apparently a big shot in the entertainment industry, is sending packages back to back to his family. And so they approached him. This is the way he told the story. They approached him and said, maybe you need some help. <laughs> maybe you'd like us to smooth the way for you. And Boris should have known <laughs> that you do not want to accept favors from, <laughs> from, from Soviet diplomats who are, in fact, spies. <laughs> Because right, then you're going to be right. in their debt. And that's exactly what happened. He was, I guess, just too naive to realize what was going on. Or maybe he realized really early on that there, there's some self-interest here beyond, you know, the clothing and food that would get to his family. And so eventually after a couple of months, the, there was a conversation that went something like, well, Boris, how's your family? You know, are they getting the packages? Yes. Would you like to, con would you like them to continue getting the packages? Yes. Well, then maybe you could do something for us. And he said, no, thank you. <laughs> they said, well, you don't really have a choice now. Actually, one of the very first things, the very first contacts was in addition to this the business of the packages, one of the first things they wanted him to do was to put Leon Trotsky on the vaudeville stage. Trotsky spoke no English, and I'm not really sure he would bring in the crowds. Boris refused to do that, apparently for just business reasons. But when they he refused to put Trotsky on stage, then they realized, oh, this is maybe someone who's going to take Stalin's position and not Trotsky's position. This is, gave the Soviets the idea at the time that Boris also may have had, oh, uh, there might have been overlapping political interests as well. Hmm. So he obviously was not a guy who was privy to any government secrets, which is what you would normally think 
the Soviets would want at that time. So besides this possible use for Trotsky, I mean, do they do you think they saw him as a one time use for that particular thing initially or did they want to you know, get their hooks into the film industry even that early? It's hard to tell, but I, what, what, in reading all this declassified material, what you get the sense is that they're just, that the Soviets are just starstruck. <laughs> that the, 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 Boris presented himself as someone who was far more important than he really was. When he went out to Paramount in 1930, 38, sorry, 35, they, they learned about this by reading it in the newspapers. They were under the impression that he was going to be the head of Paramount's California operations, when in fact, he was only the head of the music department. So <laughs> he was really playing them. But apparently, you know, it's, it's, you see this also in some of the wives of the spies. Jack Sobel's wife was just addicted to you know the gossip magazines and the Hollywood you know the the, the 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 scandal sheets and that kind of thing. You see this. So not only did the Soviets make better Hollywood moviegoers than the Americans did, but you also see that the Soviets they made better capitalists apparently than the Americans did too. That is one thing that that brought the Soviets and Boris together was money. They both thought that they could you know make a lot of it out of each other. And of course, Boris presented himself as someone who was very wealthy, even though for a couple of years, he did have plenty of money, but mostly as as his film career deteriorated, and that we can talk a little later about that if you want, about why that why that happened. But mostly, he was living on borrowed money. But he continued to. I don't know. They never really seemed to understand that Boris, aside from a few years, was not a major. Hollywood director, you know, and not a major Hollywood producer. Yes, he made four movies, all of which made good money. It seems like they were just fans of Boris. There are declassified messages that say, listen, Boris loves money, all bold letters with three, with three exclamation points. And in that sense, they seem to, they seem to be a good fit for each other, I guess. Hmm. That's amazing. There's not too many stories of the person that is approached by the intelligence organization ending up, you know, wielding more influence and authority over them than the other way around. That's got to be a real rarity for it's sure. Funny, I haven't seen that come up too many times. It's a funny kind of balance, the way that worked. Like who needed who more? Who was more dangerous to whom? Who knew what could get the other party in trouble? And so this is a real sort of cat and mouse game that went on for years and years. And and one of the things that allowed Boris to survive because listen, after a couple of years, everyone figured out who Boris was, right? Mostly lots of really great stories. But the Soviet espionage services were in such, you know, every couple of years, there was a major reorganization and, you know, you know, hundreds of people sent off to the gulag or, or executed or just disappeared. And the new generation that came in sort of fell in love with Boris all over again. And so that's one, that's, the, that's one of the ways he was able to survive by knowing who his adversary was or, or his, his ally, however you want to, however you want to keep it. But in the end, Boris was, it's, it's amazing because we can think of, try to think of a spy who lasted so long and who was able to, get both the FBI and the Kremlin to fund him, to fund his incredible lavish lifestyle. And so in the end, people think, yeah, this is now we think that Boris was in it for the money. And there's also, I mean, to jump ahead a little bit, uh, I learned from Marion that 
who claims never to have known that Boris was a spy. I don't believe it, but she claims that Boris really didn't want this all to end because he owed an enormous amount of money and the FBI would keep creditors off his back. And when he came in from the cold, the FBI wasn't going to do this anymore for him. And so he really was not that interested in coming clean uh, because that would be the end of, you know, his meal ticket, which, which, which was the FBI. But, but the stories of his dealings with the Soviets in the 1940s, really throughout the 1940s are really the story and partially in the 1950s as well are really the story of him seducing an investor. He had all these ideas about how to make a lot of money and the Soviets thought, okay, well, we'll give him $200,000 and he'll be able to create phony corporations that will give Soviet spies a way to be in the United States legally. So that's pretty much what he was able to do for a period of time, use Paramount letterhead to pretend that he was hiring all these people that were in fact just spies. Yeah, that, that's actually incredibly useful and, and lays the foundation for everything else that they want to do in country. And they certainly did a lot. And, you know, I'm really glad that you brought up the point about the turnover within the Soviet intelligence organizations, because it's easy to think of them as sort of like a, a monolithic enemy, you know, adversarial organization. But in reality, I know that in the 30s and in the 40s, and you talk about it a lot in the book, but these guys were being just like, I would almost say fed into Stalin's meat grinder. With the turnover, you know, he would find people he wouldn't trust and these highly capable agents would just be called back to Moscow and executed for nothing. And others would figure out what was going on and escape or not escape, for example. And just the the organizations were in absolute turmoil throughout that time. And Boris seemed to just navigate that with just incredible finesse his whole life. I think one of the reasons why he was able to last so long, this may seem, I don't know, sort of banal, but most of the Soviet agents that he worked with at one point or another, I mean, look, they, they were living really precarious, dangerous lives. There was an enormous amount of alcoholism, gambling, really indiscreet, you know, romantic affairs and all that business. And Boris was very clean liver. He didn't drink. He was famous in Hollywood parties for filling up a vodka bottle with water and just chugging the water all oh, night. Wow. Thought, oh. So he's so you know he can really hold his liquor. But one one of the things that that you see is that the, the Soviet agents also, agents with really considerable power, like Zarabin, were really unpredictable, terrible tempers, really indiscreet in terms of having affairs and getting drunk, yelling and screaming, brandishing firearms. So Boris was really able to see how, in so, so many respects, how unprofessional the Soviet espionage services were. It's, of course, often important to remember that that during this period – Certainly throughout the 1930s and 40s, well into the 1950s, I guess, American spies dressed like spies. <laughs> I mean, mm -hmm. like when you talk about G-Man, like we all know from the movies what G-Man dressed like. Well, why would a G-Man dress like a G-Man? Because everyone can see he's a G-Man. And so this book is also the story of just extraordinary incompetence on 
on really on both sides of, well, it wasn't the Cold War yet, but when, when it became the Cold War, that as well. And I, I think also what you had, look, if, if these constant reorganizations of the Soviet intelligence services and the secret police really undermine the ability to carry out a program, an intelligence program with any kind of continuity. On the other side of the ocean, you had the growing influence of J. Edgar Hoover on the part of the FBI. Remember for your listeners that the CIA didn't exist in any form and only existed in this, this embryonic form in the OSS starting in World War II. Uh, mm-hmm. So J. Edgar Hoover really was really unchallenged in terms of his power, but also unchallenged in terms of his obsessions. And so that's why you really do have this sort of this, 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 this sort of like a contest of incompetence or self-interest on both sides. And having said that, I mean, you know, the Soviets really outmaneuvered. This is no secret. The Soviets really outmaneuvered the Americans throughout this this entire period. One of the things that that Boris the one of the things he did was at one point went to visit the FBI, the Department of Justice headquarters in the hallway, in the, in the entryway of the, of the headquarters in Washington, D.C. They had all these applications for, you want to become a government agent, you want to work for the government here, fill out this application. Boris grabbed all these applications, brought it back to his handlers and said, look, I've got all these secret documents about America, how we <laughs> recruit our spies. And so the Soviets were really able to take advantage Maybe still of an open society. I mean, you could, you could read the newspapers and get it, American newspapers and get an enormous amount of information about American military preparedness and not so much the nuclear program, but about airports and bridges and, and harbors. And I mean, this is all material. You could go to, you could go to the public library and get very detailed maps of military installations and airports. And you couldn't do that in the Soviet Union. So Boris was able to use a lot of this material, bring it to the Soviets who were just astonished. They thought this guy must have really high level access to to have detailed maps of New York Harbor. (laughs) Yeah, that's one of the few downsides of an open society for sure, is it makes it a lot easier for your enemies, your adversaries to find out what they want, especially you know, a, a rare country like us that is so accepting of, you know, immigrants from all over the world, especially as we were back then, that makes it very easy to penetrate. But, you know, certainly wouldn't trade that for Soviet society on any day of the week. I mean, Boris was was cautioned more than once by, by his handlers not to hang out with Russians in Hollywood. It just wouldn't, it just would not look good to have that be happening. And he did it constantly. And his reasoning again, like it always was, is listen, who's going to expect me? I'm surrounded by, by, by Russians. Like who's going to think a spy would do that? Who would be so indiscreet to do that? He did it over and over again. And, and it was never really accepted by the NKVD, which was at the time, one of the different versions of the Soviet secret police or uh, intelligence uh, or organization. So he really did espionage his own way. And uh, he sort of fell between the cracks in a lot of ways, between the reorganizations and then this sort of starstruck quality, this idea that they were just the agents were dealing with a millionaire. Then, of course, 
Boris also, this really worked in his favor later, or it might have worked in his favor later. Uh, Boris was really well connected. He knew, I mentioned he had known Herbert Hoover, but he obviously knew lots of Hollywood figures, lots of figures from the music world. And eventually, starting in the World War II period, he became close friends with a number of really important political figures as well. He became very close to Cardinal Spellman, a relationship that eventually led Boris to an audience with the Pope. This is the only spy, right, who ever penetrated the Kremlin, the White House, and the Vatican. He penetrated the White House because Margaret Truman, Truman's daughter, was a singer. Not a very good one. But Boris said, listen, Margaret, you know, I can get you in the movies. Invite me to the White House. And so she did. And he ended up meeting, having dinner with Truman and his wife, Margaret. So another element of Boris's value to the Soviets was his Maybe, maybe his most, was most valuable was his circle of connections. So for example, he knew General Lucius Clay was very close to him, was the godfather of his son. Lucius Clay was in charge of the, you know, basically in charge of a huge portion of the Marshall Plan after the Second World War and also served on the Atomic Energy Commission. And in fact, Boris tried to get his son onto the Atomic Energy Commission. So this got turned around eventually into, let's see if we can get Boris to dig up incriminating or blackmailable information about all of his friends. And so this was sort of the balance that he had to walk. I mean, people now know the verified rumors or whatever you want to say that Cardinal Spellman had a relatively active homosexual life on the side. But Boris was really close to Cardinal Spellman, personally close. And so Boris had to always walk this fine line between saying which of his friends was a gambler, which one was a homosexual, which one was a, was a drunk, which one was uh, having affairs or whatever it was, giving the Soviets enough that they would leave him alone, but not so much so that he would get his friends in trouble. And that's that you have to think why would you take those kinds of risks and the reason Boris took these risks all these years well there were two reasons one is that the Soviets had his family you know in their sights and in fact the uh, Three of Boris's brothers were murdered by the, by Soviet intelligence. They were troublemakers, to be sure. So they were essentially holding this over Boris's head all these years. If you don't work with us, then your brothers are going to be in big trouble and their wives, et cetera, et cetera. In fact, Boris learned later about the death of one of his brothers. And that was one of the things maybe that in 1947, as he told it, convinced him to go to the FBI and to become a double agent. That's one of the things. And the other, and, and, and the other thing was, was the Soviets would, were able to you know, maintain Boris's lifestyle, traveling all over the world and the right kind of clothing and the right kind of parties and, and all that business. So there was this sort of double motivation to keep his family safe. And he eventually did bring his, after the death of his mother, he brought his father to the United States to live with him. But the rest of the family, he never saw again after his last trip in the 1940s. Right. It's it's so amazing, all of the complexity of everything that he was doing and just how time and time again, he was able to just, you know thread that needle and walk that fine line to use a couple of different metaphors there and stay alive. His brothers, were they executed right off the bat or were they worked to death in a... 
and a no, Siberian the Soviets kept one. them, you know, kept, kept them alive. I mean, the brothers were, you know, indiscreet. They weren't. They didn't play things smart, but they were. They were resistance figures. All of them were engineers. But no, this was this happened little by little, one by one. They got either sent off to the Gulag or just executed or disappeared or whatever. But one thing that's important to keep in mind, and we haven't really, we haven't really talked about this yet, is that. I mean, you talk about Boris threading the needle and, and, you know, all these all night interrogations and, you know, meeting in midnight, the third man sort of scenarios in, in, in partitioned Vienna. But Boris was really considered to be something of a clown in Hollywood. This is one of the reasons why I think he sort of played up his accent to make it seem like he could entertain everybody. He was half of the stories that you read about Boris in the 1930s are about his clothing because he would wear a striped tie, a plaid shirt, a polka dot, you know, suit, pink socks and whatever. In fact, some people say that, or Boris himself said that the vogue for Hawaiian shirts that he started that in the late 1940s. But there are all these ways in which Boris was really, was really, I mean, they, they used to say that, that Boris was the only man in America who could smile and cry at the same time. And that really says a lot to me about who Boris must have been. And often I, I, I sit here at my desk wondering a lot, too much, I think, who was this guy? Like, and how, why would, for year after year, why would he, subject himself to that kind of publicity. Marion, the last thing she ever said to me before she died was Boris was a wounded child. There was some kind of trauma and that he needed the fame and the money or the recognition, something to make up for it in a certain way. He was always chasing after this. And I think in some respects, this makes him, for me anyway, like a typical American, right? Like a, a person who's reinventing himself constantly and who's gesturing to money and fame. He was more American than, than the, the, a lot of his colleagues were, uh, who, who were born and raised in America, more American than his, than his son. I mean, he had a very sad family life. Like Dick, his son, killed himself in the 1960s. And that's one of the reasons why it's a little bit difficult to be in touch with the family because, I mean, who wants to take a phone call to talk about your, your, you know, the grandfather who killed himself or something like that? For sure, for um, sure. So that was difficult getting the family members to talk. Hmm. Yeah, I can imagine. Do you think that there was ever a time when, I mean, I'm trying to get you to put yourself in his mind here, of course, but do you think that there was ever a time when it became overwhelming for him? And he's like, this is too much. I can't keep this up. I got to, I got to leave all this behind one way or the other. I mean, was that when he finally went to the FBI or do you think it never quite went down like that? I got an email a couple of months ago from a guy who's the, who says, I mean, he says he's the son of of the FBI agent. Look, when, when Boris was doing all that traveling, you know, as a double agent uh, starting in 1947 for the next 10 years, he was always shadowed by two FBI agents. And I was never able to find out who they were. So this, out of the blue, I get this email from a guy who says, I'm the son of one of these FBI agents. And this guy told me stuff that <laughs> I'd write a different book <laughs> now if I, if I knew this now. So for example, you, you got to read Boris's autobiography with you know, a whole several salt shakers full of salt, not just a grain. Mm -hmm. The the son of the FBI agent says that that not only did Boris not write it, and not only did the ghostwriter who's listed on the cover not write it, but this was an FBI production. He also what? says wow. that Boris did not 
to, did not come to the FBI. The FBI came to him and they presented him with an ultimatum, which is, and remember, this is not that long before the Rosenbergs presented with an ultimatum. We know what you're doing. So you can either work for us or you can go to the electric chair. Well, I mean, so that, so, so we, we, we can see that Boris's motives <laughs> probably weren't too patriotic, but were as usual, a question of self-interest and survival. I think one of the ways that, that Boris, you know, that Boris was able to survive was the work that he was doing because he was really quite an entrepreneur. And there even, there even times during his career in, in the 1940s when his Soviet handlers are trying to find him and he takes off on a publicity tour of 22 states for one of his movies, just hiding out from them. It's extraordinary that how, you know, how often you see spies in America and, and later Jack Sobel in Canada, you know, like, cowering in fear and hiding from their handlers. So I think Boris was able to escape that way. I think also, strangely enough, you know, the limelight was where he was most comfortable, I guess. Uh, he just wasn't home that much ever. Uh, and he was constantly traveling from the late 1920s really up until he fell ill with cancer in 1962, 1963. So I think the limelight was really what made it worth it for him. Although there's some very sad conversations that get reported how his father said, Boris, what do you do for a living? You make these American movies? Like we raised you to be a classical musician. And that 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 really did hurt Boris, and there were efforts for Boris to bolster that other side of him. He ran something called the Boris Morris String Quartet, which played on the radio in California, and it was syndicated over all over America. And Boris also was sort of the go-to man for leading orchestras, fundraising balls and galas, especially during the Second World War. And so the, really the music and the limelight seemed to have kept him going. Yeah, yeah, it certainly seems that way, and I can't believe that the the tempo that he kept up all through life and all the different things that he had going on. I do want to ask you about how the FBI did finally approach him, but before we go on, I want to take a moment to fill you guys in on the newest tool that I'm wearing and carrying in daily life. It's the Donovan Non-Metallic Knife from Black Triangle. If you aren't familiar with Black Triangle, then you're really missing out. I love these guys because they put the dagger in cloak and dagger. If you've been following me for a while now, then you probably already know why Black Triangle has called their newest non-metallic knife the Donovan. It's named after General William Wild Bill Donovan, the head of the U.S. Office of Strategic Services during World War II. Under Donovan, the OSS was unconventional, unexpected, and highly effective, just like Black Triangle's tools. The Donovan is manufactured here in the United States. It's made entirely of G10 composite, and it comes with a thermoplastic sheath and a couple of amazing extras, which you'll have to see for yourself. You can find it at blacktriangle.com. That's B-L-K triangle.com. You can also get 15% off your first order with Black Triangle using the discount code SPYCRAFT101 or by navigating to blacktriangle.com slash SPYCRAFT101. I love mine, and I know you're going to love yours too. So, Jonathan, you said that there's a little bit of debate, I guess, over whether or not the FBI approached Boris or vice versa. So what do you think happened and, and what happened regardless, what happened once the FBI was involved in Boris's life? Yeah, so Boris tells the story uh, in his autobiography that on Bastille Day, oh, you know, internationally recognizes the day of the French Revolution and freedom and enlightenment and all that business that he – 
drove to the FBI office, called them up, said, I'm Boris Moros. And they said, oh, we've, we've known about you for a long time. We were wondering when we were going to get this call. He walked in, had a two-day debriefing and sort of interrogation, and they converted him to become a, a double agent at the time. That, that, that sounds like a real Boris Moros story. I mean, if for no other reason than it makes him look really good, like a really good American. But I suspect that it, the FBI had been following him for a long time. By 1947, they'd been following him at least for four years. Remember, of course, that, you know, prominent Russians. One thing to, important to remember is that not only were the Soviet intelligence services changing all the time, but also America's relationship with the Soviet Union was going back and forth. Allies before the Hitler-Stalin pact in 1939, then from 39 to 41, Russians would have been very suspect. And then after 1941, Russians were again American allies. So, so the FBI was watching prominent Russians, especially those who, like Boris, hung out with a lot of Russians, had made several trips back to the Soviet Union, that kind of thing. And so his name came up in a recorded conversation, clandestinely recorded, that took place regarding what was called the Berkeley Radiation Lab. And this is sort of the beginning of Boris's involvement with nuclear espionage. I mean, nuclear espionage is sort of the gold standard of, you know, mid 20th century, the Cold War espionage. And while Boris didn't quite have the this kind of story that the Rosenbergs had, he was nonetheless quite involved in getting photographs made of certain nuclear installations and then delivering those photographs to the Soviets. At the same time, after 1947, Boris was playing it, playing it both ways. And eventually the Soviets must have approached him. It just doesn't make sense to me that he would have, you know, knocked on their door and said, I'm a good American. I want to serve my country. And he's, his excuse was that his last brother had been killed and there's just no way he was ever going to work with the Soviets again. But he was in for a big surprise because he would have to do it for another, another, another 10 years. Uh, <laughs> right. And I mean, imagine like I, I found it hard to keep straight just sitting at my desk, like looking at all these materials and front of me. Imagine what it must have been like for Boris to keep all this to keep all this straight. So the FBI recruited him at one point in 1947, maybe a little earlier, to become a double agent. And then he was sent around everywhere he went. He was shadowed by two FBI agents and he would be delivering documents to them or they would sort of smooth, smooth the way. But most important of all, they would pay for everything. The fancy hotel rooms, transatlantic cruises, you know, hotel rooms filled with with flowers for Marion. Boris was uh, not a cheap agent to have, but they really thought that he might be able to, to be able to come through for for them, both in terms of the of nuclear espionage, but also in terms of later on, in terms of blackmailing prominent Americans. There was also at one point, one of his early jobs was questions of aviation technology. The FBI learned that the Soviets uh, were having trouble with two of the elements in their jet their airplanes, the jet airplanes, one of which was at high altitudes, the acrylic part that covered up the cockpit would form bubbles. And the other was at high speed landings, the Soviets were having a hard time figuring out what the right kind of material to, to use for the tires of the, of the, of the, of the, the landing gear. And Boris ended up feeding the Soviets false scientific data about both of those questions. So he was involved in sort of, sort of science, technology, misinformation campaigns at first, questions of nuclear espionage, photographs of nuclear installations. And then later on, it became more, more sort of personal blackmail efforts. Wow. It's amazing to me that 
like you said earlier in the interview, the Soviets were looking for blackmail material on a lot of Americans like Cardinal Spellman and others. And then the FBI comes calling and they're apparently looking for pretty much the same thing as well, among other things. But I understand no, that, right? Um, I mean, the, the, it, it was, I mean, I mean, Boris told, you know, the Soviets what they wanted to hear and he told the FBI what they wanted to hear as well. <laughs> you can imagine, right. you don't want to brag too much about, about, about being good buddies with, 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 with Leventi Beria. But I do think that even though the Soviets really had the upper hand in terms, it seems to me, in terms of espionage success, in part because of America was such a, I mean, remember that Stalin knew about the atom bomb before the White House knew about it. That's how there was, there was not a single federal agency in during the wartime period, not a single one that wasn't infiltrated by Soviet agents. And at the same time, the Americans had nobody in, in the Soviet Union in terms of espionage, really more or less until Boris came along at the Soviet embassy in Moscow. The great seal of the United States, which was on a wall, the Soviets had a bug in the, in the great seal. So the American intelligence services were, were totally outclassed. But that's because in part, because you remember that espionage was considered ungentlemanly. You had to lie. You had to falsify. You had to betray your friends. And it was a long time. I'm not the expert in all the, the entire espionage history, but it was a long time before the American intelligence services, you know, got their acts together, stopped dressing like spies, you know, and started uh, taking more risks that way. Even in questions of of having Americans who were learning Russian, it just wasn't easy to be a spy in a closed society like that. And the other way around, it was just extraordinarily easy for the Russians to take advantage of American freedoms. Oh, right, right. Yeah. U.S. intelligence agencies were way behind the Russians right from the start. There's no question about that. It, and, you know, you said it something. Reminds me, I mean, I, I don't want to, you know, one doesn't want to make too many comparisons between really vastly different historical uh, eras. But, you know, when 9-11 happened, America was really poorly prepared in terms of intelligence agents with Arabic language skills. So something very similar seems to have characterized American intelligence services. Really, there's a kind of continuity there because, you know, the lying, the deception, it was because it was ungentlemanly, Americans were, it seems, a little afraid to, to do the dirty work that, that, that has to be done in espionage. Yeah, I would, I would say that's a, a great, I don't know if I'd call it philosophical, maybe a social, social or uh, cultural point. There for sure, but we kind of um, look down on that dirty work in a big way, uh, especially because you know we're governed more so by by laws and are more of an open society than the Soviet Union was, and that Russia was before it, for sure. But we do need to be able to go toe to toe with our adversaries in some ways, even as a society of laws. And so that's why they were able to run circles around the U.S. in so many ways, especially like you just mentioned something incredible a moment ago in passing, but. Like you said, Joseph Stalin was aware of the Manhattan Project before the vice president, Harry Truman, was aware of it. I know that Roosevelt was aware from the beginning, but nobody else at the White House was. And yet Joseph Stalin was aware because of how thoroughly he had penetrated that program and just about every other aspect of American I mean, society. Well, I, I guess to be, to, be, to be fair to the many, many, many people who you know gave their careers and lives in some cases for the American intelligence service – 
like we don't know what we don't know, <laughs> right? And in some cases, we may never know. I mean, I made a very broad freedom of information request with the FBI for everything they had on Boris Moros. And I, I got a recognition. Yeah, we've received your letter, but I never heard anything else from them. I'm not complaining because I found other ways to figure out what I wanted to, 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 to what I needed to know. But it's really interesting. I mean, the book is also a little bit about you know, the culture of espionage and how different the cultures of espionage are from, from country to country. Yeah, certainly. Certainly. No question about it. So you, you mentioned that Boris worked for the FBI for nearly 10 more years. Well, how did he finally kind of extricate himself from all of this? I mean, how did he end up, you know, living the rest of his life in relative peace? Anyway, what was the catalyst for all of that? Yeah, well, so there wasn't there wasn't actually that much of the rest of his life because he died five years after six years after he came out in public. But as time went on, Boris was of less and less use both to the Soviets and to the FBI, even though he was traveling frenetically, both for his espionage tasks and also constantly trying to raise money from both from both agencies for different sorts of television. Boris has realized relatively early on what the potential for television might be. In fact, Boris had got the Soviets to buy or to pay for the construction of a television studio in New York City, right around the corner from the Plaza Hotel. And I always find it's a funny kind of irony that, that the Soviets had were funding cover television operation in the same building where the television program, Howdy Doody, <laughs> you don't get more American than <laughs> Howdy Doody in the 1950s, right? That it was the exact same building. He was of less and less use for the Soviets who had more and more doubts because he was producing less and less intelligence for them. Lucky for him, you know, you know, especially, you know, in the mid 1950s, you know, the intelligence, the top echelons were, you know, in chaos, Stalin totally unpredictable. He was able to survive by just putting off the Soviets and in many respects, the FBI as well. Eventually, the Soviets had suspected Boris of being a, a double agent for many, many years. Long before he was actually a double agent, they were worried about this. But the people who rose, raised those doubts, you know, were mostly executed eventually or put in <laughs> prison or whatever that would be. But eventually it was really clear that there were a lot of people on both sides who knew what Boris was up to. And the end came in a Munich hotel room with a little slip of paper pushed under the door that said Cinerama, which that's this huge curved screen in really big movie theaters. So something is filmed in Cinerama. So that was the code word for Boris that you got to get out because the Soviets know what you've been up to and you got to get out now. However, <laughs> I learned from Marion, she says it didn't take place in Munich. It took place in Berlin. And she has a whole different way of telling this story. So I thought if I had to choose, I'm going to choose what I think is the most reasonable. And also, I mean, not to automatically think that everything Boris says is a lie. But he got the, he was tipped off, took the, um, took a plane back to the United States and immediately was made into a public figure, testified before Congress, testified in a private session of the House on American Activities Committee. He was, as they say, above the fold in the New York Times when he came in. And then, of course, his whole ring, little by little, uh, 
the, the next morning, one couple was arrested. The next morning after that, another couple was arrested. Uh, Martha and Alfred Stern, who he'd worked with, fled to Mexico. Jane Foster and George Lotovsky were also part of his group. They were uh, safe in France because there was no extradition treaty. His ring fell apart. It had been falling apart for a while, to tell you the truth, especially in terms of Jack Sobel, who was a legendary agent for whom Boris worked until Sobel began working for Boris. But both Sobel and his brother, Robert Soblen, had struggled with mental health issues for many years. I mean, who wouldn't, you know, after decades working for the Soviet intelligence services? So Boris suddenly was, you know, a, a great American patriot, was on television and the radio. And, and as Marion tells it, everywhere we went, people were giving Boris the key to the city. A movie came out, a fictionalization of his autobiography called Man on a String with Ernest Borgnine. It's a good movie. The whole thing's available. It's in the public domain. You can get it on archive.org or you can get it on YouTube, I think, as well. Hmm. But eventually, 1962, he fell ill with cancer uh, and died relatively quickly. It was interesting going to visit his ex-wife because it was like a scene out of Great Expectations with Miss Havisham, where you know the old widow who was jilted when she was a young woman and never changed anything. When you went to the house where they lived, it was like you'd stepped out of some kind of mod mid-century apartment with all this built-in blonde wood. And and that's where Boris lived in the last years of his life and and it hasn't changed um, at all. So the last years of his life, in as much as he was healthy enough to do it, he was so desperate to reclaim some kind of position in Hollywood or in the entertainment industry. But he had burned all those bridges. I mean, who was going to talk? I mean, he had been lying to his his wife divorced him. Uh, he'd been lying to her, to, to lying to everybody, maybe lying to himself also. But he was really quite friendless at the end, even as, you know, he claimed, I've given everything for this country. And, you know, he had given everything. He also got a lot in return, a lot of luxury, a lot of money. It's a sad end. Did he live, you know, looking over his shoulder after the congressional testimony and everything? Or did he feel like, in your estimation, did he feel like he was kind of free of everything at that point? Well, I mean, as Marion tells it, they were constantly on the go. And I wonder, you know, was that a matter of this is just Boris who wants the attention? Or was he, you know, on the run? Boris certainly felt a lot safer in Europe at the end of his career as a spy and even several years after that, because in America, the Soviets, so Boris thought, could get to him relatively easily, again, because the the espionage network in America was so successful and he could sort of hide out in Europe better. And this is why he was almost constantly traveling at the end. But he was never really able to. I mean, if you if you ask what did Boris accomplish in terms of his entertainment career, it was all you know, kind of Ponzi scheme style, raising money to fund you know the year before debts, and then raising more money to fund next year's debts because oh, the wow. FBI wasn't wasn't paying for him anymore, and the FBI wasn't uh, protecting him anymore either. So I get the feeling that even though you'll see the pictures of Boris having a grand old time, you know, at at the New Year's Eve party or whatever, that 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 I I think what was worse for him was not so much that he was afraid. Look, he was an old man, and he'd lived through many, many very dangerous, terrifying situations before. I think it hurt a lot more that he just wasn't getting the attention he so craved. It was just like that was his daily bread, fame. He didn't really have it anymore after a certain point. 
Well, I can believe it. I can believe it for sure. Well, Jonathan, this has been really fascinating. Um, I want to encourage all of my listeners to pick up this book and read it for sure. The title is Hollywood Double Agent, The True Tale of Boris Moros, Film Producer Turned Cold War Spy. Honestly, we, we could have talked for twice this length of time about this story. There's so many people that we've just kind of glossed over, like Jack Sobel that he just mentioned, Jane Foster and the Stearns. These are some integral characters to the book. They have some incredible stories and he's really covered them well. So I encourage you to pick this up and read it yourself. I think you'll enjoy it as much as I did. And, you know, Jonathan, I've, I've covered a lot of spy stories here and I certainly have not covered one like Boris's life story up until this point. So thank you for bringing this to our attention and for coming on today to talk about it as well. Oh, it's been my pleasure. So is is there anywhere that people can connect with you if they want to learn more? Do you have a public facing social media or anything like that where listeners can connect with you? Justin, I am a very, very late adopter of everything. <laughs> I do not even own a mobile phone and I don't want oh, wow. to. That's why, that's why okay. I'm able to write books. But if, so if you want to get in touch with me, anyone wants to get in touch, just get in touch with the publisher. That's Abrams Books. And they are, they're really good. Their publicity people are really good about passing on any kind of emails or messages to me. Okay, great. And speaking of publishing, are you working on anything new at the moment that you can share at this point? Now, you know you're not supposed to ask that question. <laughs> I'm actually also one of these people that's – I mean, my own wife doesn't know what, I'm, what my next project's going to be. I'm one of those sort of magical thinkers who thinks if I talk about it, it's not going to happen. I mean, I've got a couple of projects, but you know, all my projects always involve some kind of – popular American, popular culture, music, something like that. I've, I've got a couple ideas. Okay. All right. Great. Well, I certainly look forward to it and I'll keep an eye out for you. And once again, I really appreciate you coming on, Jonathan. Thank you so much. Thank you. <clears throat> if you're interested in more of Spycraft 101, look for my page on Instagram at Spycraft 101 or connect with me on Patreon. My patrons get exclusive access to long form blog posts that dive deep into some of the most amazing stories in the history of espionage and receive free or discounted books and products from the Spycraft 101 store. That includes a free PDF copy of my own book, Spy Shots Volume 1, 101 True Tales from the World of Espionage. I want to say a big thank you to all of my patrons, including Lauren M. and James J. With your support, I've been able to continue funding my research and publication across multiple platforms to date. Thank you all for listening, and I hope you'll stick around because there's lots more to come. Thanks for listening to this program brought to you by Daydreamer Network. If you enjoyed the episode, please don't forget to rate and review on Apple Podcasts or your preferred platform. Your feedback allows us to rank on the best new shows list and continue to grow our podcasts in order to bring more unique and talented storytellers to the network. To check out our shows, including programs about relationships, sports, business, nutrition, leisure, and more, head to www.daydreamernetwork.com. We look forward to seeing you back next week for another great episode. Have a wonderful day.